Good evening. Good evening. Man, it's a hot, sticky day. Yeah. And uh, the person next to you is hot and sticky. Move up, move a few inches away into another sticky person on the other side. <laughs> I have really uh, been blessed and enjoyed being here with you guys. Uh, we have tonight, tomorrow night. Uh, day will go really fast. Uh, some of you will start getting weepy, and uh, some of you will start turning your face towards home. And uh, in the next uh, 24 hours or so, uh, this is really an important time as we come to the end of camp, uh, because you know you need to gear up uh, for what's coming at you when you go home. Uh, you know we are Christians and we live in a spiritual world that is full of spiritual conflict, and often. Uh, you know, they talk about uh, having a sort of a mountain high experience, and that's literally true. We, we go to the mountain and we praise God and we get close to the Lord and we meet people that we love and we admire, and uh, then we go home. And sometimes it seems like they, the devil hits us right at the front door. I'm not talking about your mother okay, or your father, uh, it could just be anything that you know you had an expectation and a plan of how you were going to get back in the house and, you know, uh, just everything could go wrong. And I just want you to be praying that the Holy Spirit would prepare your heart. Um, so, you know, don't go home with regret about leaving here. Hit the beach. Now, I'm not talking about going swimming. I'm talking like of the Marines. Hit the beach. You are, you are entering warfare. And uh, you need to ask God to put uh, His armor on you and so that you can fight the battle. Uh, we don't want you to uh, fall into sin or get clobbered uh, in some emotional, spiritual way in the first week or two of your home. Now, that's not what this camp is for, just to give you a, a mountain-high experience. It's supposed to give you some tools uh, to live in the real world. In a sense, this is artificial. It's, it's a wonderful artificial. We love doing this. We love coming together. Uh, praise God for those moments. They are a blessing. Uh, but real life awaits. Amen? Amen. So be prepared for it. Uh, I'm going to pray, and then I'm going to read to us from the book of Isaiah tonight. Uh, Isaiah chapter uh, 58. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to You tonight and we ask You first to forgive us our sins. Lord, any sin in our heart, in our eyes, in our flesh, anything, word we've said that was out of place, uh, oh Lord, have mercy on us. And Because of Jesus' death on the cross, forgive us. And Holy Spirit, give us that freshness that comes with a word from You that we are Your children and we are forgiven. Oh, Holy Spirit, we're praying tonight for Your anointing, for Your grace to come upon every heart. Lord, You have an agenda here for everyone at this camp. And I pray, Lord, that You would use Your Word to accomplish that agenda. We pray, Father, for that preparation to go home. We pray, Lord, for the, the controlling of our tongue, uh, that You would deliver us from fear, from anger, from bitterness, Lord. Uh, we know we'll go home tired, 
And so, Lord, we pray that you give us that extra special grace that we could merge back into our routines, but this time with the knowledge that you will never leave us or forsake us. And we ask these mercies in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> Chapter 58 of the book of Isaiah says this, Cry aloud. Do not hold back. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their transgression, to the house of Jacob their sins. Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways, as if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgments of their God. They ask of me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. Why have we fasted and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? Behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice to be heard on high. Is such the fast that I choose? A day for a person to humble himself? Is it to bow down his head like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this a fast and a day acceptable to the Lord? Is this not the fast that I choose? To loose the bonds of wickedness. To undo the straps of the yoke. To let the oppressed go free. And to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house? When you see the naked, to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh, then shall your light break forth like the dawn and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call, and the Lord will answer. You shall cry, and He will say, Here I am. If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger, and speaking wickedness, if you pour yourself out for the hungry, and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then shall your light rise in the darkness and your gloom be as the noonday. And the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places and make your bones strong. And you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. And your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt. You shall raise up the foundations of many generations. You shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of streets to dwell in. If you turn back your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight, and the holy day of the Lord honorable, if you honor it, 
Not going your own ways or seeking your own pleasure or talking idly. Then you shall take delight in the Lord and I will make you ride on the high places of the earth. I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob your father for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Amen. Amen. The word of the Lord. Amen. That's some good stuff. My question tonight is have you got good religion? It's an old gospel song. Because, you know, everybody talking about heaven ain't going there. And a lot of people got religion in the world. And there are an awful lot of people whose religion is Christianity. There are a lot of people who say their religion is Presbyterianism. But the question still comes home, have you got good religion? Now notice what God says to His people here. He says, you are very religious. You keep bugging me. You keep bothering me. You keep wanting my attention. And you, you get mad at me. Because you say, I am not paying attention to your religion. I'm not paying attention to your religious feasts or to your fasts. That I've somehow ignored you. But God says, but here's my question for you. Is that the kind of religion I want? Oh, I tell you, you know, in the PCA, we got some good religion. We, we, we got it organized. We got great theology. And look, I'm not talking about acceptable theology. I'm talking about great theology. We're not, we're not amateurs when it comes to theology. We know our stuff. Okay, we got books. And our preachers know how to read. It's amazing. We got theology. And we got orders of worship. You know, we got churches publishing worship bulletins going on for like 15 pages. We got everything laid out. We 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 got it so well organized. We have an organized religion. The question is, is it good religion? What does God want? Now we started this week talking about be good to do good. And so our first few days we were talking about how do we get to be good? How can we ever be accepted as good in God's sight? How will God ever accept us as righteous? And so we talked about justification. And we talked about the reality that when we come in faith and believe in Jesus, that there is this wonderful transaction that takes place. It's a miracle of God where God imputes the righteousness of Christ to us. And He imputes our sin to Jesus as He hangs on the cross. He becomes sin for us who knew no sin. That we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. That's how in God's sight we are justified. It happens by faith. By grace, through faith, we believe and God declares us forever. You're righteous. Oh, hallelujah. And I tell you, that doctrine will come back to bless you time and time again. When you fail, when you blow it, when you are absolutely ashamed and you cannot imagine 
that God would take you back, you come to that doctrine one more time and you realize, oh, it's already taken care of. The blood of Jesus Christ will never lose its power. That's your hope. And it's also your identity because from justification comes adoption that you and I are are children of the living God. We are the royal household of God. He loves His children. And we are able to come to Him and call Him Abba, Father, because He loves us. You know, I, I remember, you know, as a senior pastor, you know, I had to tell my secretary, you know, that there were times I didn't want to be bothered, times I wanted to study. I couldn't take phone calls. I, I couldn't take appointments. But if one of my children's called, that should be children, not children's. Okay. One of my children called. Put them through. Why? They're not an elder. They're not a major tither. No, but they're my children. They have access. And you, by grace, have access. By faith, you have access into this grace in which we now stand. We are standing in grace, which means we're loved by the Father. And I just, so I just want to let you know, time and time for the rest of your life, you're going to come back to the glory of justification in the joy and hope of your adoption as children. That's our goodness in the eyes of God. But what about our goodness in, on earth in terms of living our lives? And so we talked about sanctification. And we said that the same grace that brought us into salvation is the same grace that enables us to live godly. Yes, we are saved. Yes, we are justified. And the the question came up, well, shall we just go on sinning because the more we sin, the more grace we get? And the word was, God forbid. Of course not. If Jesus is coming to your life, He lives in you, and He has put in all of His children a hunger and a thirst for righteousness. It's what he does. You can't be a true Christian without that hunger and thirst for righteousness. Sometimes it will be because you you feel ashamed and you have a conscience that bothers you about where you're failing. And sometimes it's just a desire to grow closer to Jesus. And all of that comes by grace, the power of the Holy Spirit. And he helps you say no to sin and yes to God. And we talked about that. It's not willpower that gets you to stop doing the things you shouldn't be doing. It's not rules. It's not more strictness. Christianity's tried that. I'll tell you, we have a religion of rules. We laid it on the people. And all it did was create hypocrisy. If you try to live the Christian life as a rule keeper, you will keep secrets because you're afraid of being exposed as somebody who breaks the rules. And instead of going to somebody for help and crying out to God for grace, for victory, you will keep a secret compartment in your life away from everybody else. But who are we kidding? There is no place God does not see. And He knows. And you don't have to live that way. You don't have to live a life addicted to habitual and life-controlling sins. You, You do not have to live a secret life. You have the Holy Ghost in you 
Christ in you, the hope of glory. And he, is an, he has the power to break the power of reigning sin, like the hymn says. So we're good in God's sight, and we're getting gooder. We're getting better. We're, getting, we're, we're growing in holiness by God's grace. Sometimes it seems, though, you know, the older you get, you say, man, I don't feel like I've made much progress at all. But Christ is being formed in you. Put your hope in that. But we also talked last night that if all of this religion you have is a privatized religion, it's all about, I'm, I'm accepted with God, and, and I'm, I'm doing more quiet time, and you know, I'm spending more time in prayer, and, and I'm doing more Bible study, and, and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm just living a, a nice, clean, holy life. But you don't do anything, then you are not living out the purpose for which God saved you. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not by works, lest any man should boast. For... We are God's workmanship who created us in Christ Jesus to do what? Good works. Good works. So in other words, God, He, he, he wants some product. God wants something back from you. Not to earn your salvation. You got that. Not to help you get holier. You got that. By grace, from the Holy Spirit. But to give Him Glory. He has prepared these good works for you to do. And they are not the good works of religious activity. Now, now I'm, you know, I earned my living as a pastor. Religion was my business. Church is what paid my, my salary. I like religious people. I want there to be more of them. Especially rich ones who tithe. <laughs> Got to take care of me, right? Look, religion for far too many people has been a business. And it's been a game. And I would also say this about an awful lot of American religion, and even some PCA religion, it's been irrelevant. It's been irrelevant to the kingdom of God, and it's been irrelevant to the lost. And we have continued to play religious games and we wonder why God doesn't answer our prayers. We are just like the people of Israel. Why do we do all this, God? You don't pay attention. You know, it's as if God had to come down and say, have you ever thought about the people you employ who work for you in your company? You pay them a fair wage? What's that got to do with church? It's got everything to do with justice. You know, how do you treat people? Do you, uh, are you a racist? you have racism in your heart to some ethnic group? To black people? To Latinos? People who have some kind of accent? But you say that's okay, that's really... They, they have their community, we have ours. I can tell those jokes, I can make fun of them. Jesus said, are you kidding me? 
These people who claim the same Jesus Christ you do, who are going to the same heaven you are, who they are your brothers and sisters, and you are told in no uncertain terms that you cannot say you love God whom you can't see if you hate your brother who you can see? Are you kidding me? And yet you go to church and you sing songs of salvation and you hate people? You know, I very much in my life, in my heart, would like to have the religion of God. I would like not to have a religion invented by men. I I would like to have a faith that follows Christ. Because that is who our religion is based on. Nothing else. Jesus Christ. Let's see what Jesus thought. His mission was. Turn with me to Luke chapter 4. Now remember, I just read to you from Isaiah 58. Jesus in this passage of Luke 4 is going to pick up the same scroll of Isaiah and he's going to turn a few pages on to Isaiah 61. And he's going to read it. And he came, verse 16 of chapter 4. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. And this is Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down The eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Wow. Jesus is saying, I've arrived. The mission you heard about in Isaiah, the call that God had for his people, not to have a a false and phony religion of a lot of activity, but a real religion that expressed itself in acts of love to the most helpless and the most beat down. That mission that you have always known was the Messiah's mission, the anointed, the Christ, that's me. That's what I'm here to do. I'm just impressed with how many of us don't have any idea that this is the mission of Christ. And a lot of our religion has been all about bigger congregations and bigger buildings and more activities and the reputation of pastors and the writing of books, getting on television and getting on the radio. And Jesus said, I'm anointed to preach the gospel to the poor. It's the poor that God 
wants to chase down and bring into the kingdom of God. Now, you know, people might state, well, wait a minute, don't middle class people and wealthy people need Jesus? Of course! But Jesus has an agenda. Jesus has an agenda to capture the hearts of men and women, boys and girls, and bring them into the same mission he has. That they would care for the least. The, the people who don't have enough to eat, and nowhere to sleep, and no clothes to wear, who are sick, and nobody visits them, and in prison, and no one goes to them. And in fact, in Matthew 25, Jesus says that's what the judgment's going to be like. Because he's going to say to those people, he's going to separate the sheep from the goats. And he's going to say to the sheep on his right, he says, you know, I, I was one of those people who was hungry. And, and I was thirsty. And you fed me and you gave me something to drink. And, and I was homeless and I had no clothes. And you came and you clothed me. And I was sick and in prison. And you came to visit me. And he'll say, Lord, when do we see you in, in that situation and do that. And he'll say, when you did it to the least of these brethren of mine, you did it to me. Enter. Enter the glory prepared for you by my Father. Then he's going to say, and you goats on the left, I was in that condition and had all that need and you didn't do any of those things for me. And they're going to say the same thing. Lord, when, when did we see you in that condition? And, and didn't he immediately respond? If we had seen you, you know Jesus, we would have helped you. And Jesus said, in the, least that you, in the fact that you didn't do it to the least of these, you didn't do it to me. And he sends them to hell. Now, did they get to go to heaven because they did good works? The answer to that is yes and no. They get to go to heaven. We get to go to heaven because grace saved us and enables us to do those good works. Those good works are the proof that the Spirit of Jesus is in us. Please understand how radical the Spirit of Jesus is. Jesus hates injustice. He hates affliction. He hates oppression. And he loves to rescue. I like that about him. He loves to rescue. Let's get another picture of true religion. Turn with me to the book of James. James chapter 1. And let's just uh, start at verse 22 here. But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts. He will be blessed in his doing. 
If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. There's the great combination. We are saved by grace. We're growing in holiness by grace. That means we are keeping ourselves unstained from the world. That's part of the Christian life. But it's only one part of it. And it's a very, it's a very personalized part of it. That I could resist temptation. That I could get through a day without thinking nasty thoughts. Or bitter thoughts. Or hate you. Or being petty. You know, it's a very personal walk with God. But God says, you know, let's get out of the house a little bit. And let's get down to the widow's house. And let's get down to the orphans. Because they need my love too. I just want to talk for a few minutes about the world that we live in. We are Americans, most of us, I guess, in this room. We, we enjoy a great standard of living. We have an incredible amount of freedom. And I'll tell you, if anybody encroaches on any of those freedoms, oh, do we howl. Uh, we are probably one of the most whining groups of nation, people in, in the world. We whine about everything. Uh, we're, we're terrified. We're terrified somebody will tax us too much. We'll take our guns. Uh, we'll, you know, we'll just limit our freedom in any kind of way. And a lot of us Christians are caught up with that kind of whining spirit. But we also live in a, a nation with an awful lot of sin. We decided as a nation that it was okay to kill babies in the womb. And we've killed millions of them. We chop them up. We burn them with acid. We cut their heads off. We let them be born. And we'll stab them in the head with a pair of scissors. That's abortion. And we don't do it just to, to help women who've been raped or have been the victims of incest. No, we do it to repair the damage of a bad decision of casual sex. We live in a nation that celebrates homosexual sex and promiscuous sex of all kinds. We have no boundaries. We don't want there to be any boundaries. We're a nation of racism. We were built on slavery. We took the Native Americans' land. We have exploited all kinds of people. And we live in fear. So we have police officers who, when they see a black man driving in a white neighborhood, they almost automatically pull him over. And often those incidents, just like happened this week and in death, uh, when you go home, you might get to see the videos. I've watched them of the two men who were killed. It's going to be interesting to see how justice plays out. 
And some of you will hear from groups like Black Lives Matter, and you will hear other spokesmen, and you will talk in your home about how you are really irritated at these black people who are always complaining, and if they had just done what the police officer had said, they wouldn't be dead. But that shows an incredible ignorance and lack of understanding about what's going on. By the way, one of the great books you might want to read is a book called The Collapse of American Criminal Justice, written by William J. Stuntz, who was a professor at Harvard Law School, who also happened to be a PCA elder. He's passed away now, but in 2011 he wrote that book. I can't tell you what a fantastic uh, expose it is of what has happened to our court system, what has happened to our police forces, what has happened to how we indict people. We are a nation that has the highest incarceration rate in the world. We put more people in prison than any other country on earth for all kinds of things. And far and away, the percentage of African Americans is totally out of proportion to our population. You know, we have in states that they determined that by the third grade, the reading level of the children who are in the third grade determines how many jail cells they will build for them when they turn 18. We're pretty good at predicting, measuring statistics. We live in a nation of injustice. Now you may say, well, I'm a Christian. I know Jesus wants me to win people to Christ. Maybe if we get all these wicked people saved, that they won't do those bad things. And I am totally, totally in favor of evangelism. Amen! Get them saved! But I also want you to know that you're going to have a place to, and a part to play in turning injustice into justice. One of the parts is that you are going to go, hopefully, to college, and you're going to have a vocation. And all along the way, there are going to be moments, sometimes they'll be very fleeting, very fast moments, when you will get to stand up for the truth. You will get to stand up for justice. You will say, that's not funny. I don't laugh at people because of the color of their skin. You will have the chance to sit down with the person nobody else sits with to show them the love of Christ. You will have the opportunity, some of you, Maybe to become a police officer and to have the kind of courage that says, I'm not afraid of that man. God is protecting me. I'll do what I train to do. I will enforce the law, but I will not kill somebody just because I'm scared of the color of his skin. Some of you will be lawyers and you will be able to defend people. And some of you will have the ability to put really bad people in prison, and you should. Because there, there are people who belong in prison. But knowing the difference. Some of you might even have the ability to put payday loans out of business. Where a poor person who can't pay their rent comes in right before their payday and says, can you loan me this money? And before they're done paying that loan, they will have paid a thousand percent interest. That's what's happening in our country. 
You know, that used to be against the law. And it used to be against the law because state legislatures said, even in the state of Tennessee at one time, you could only charge 10% interest. That was it. That's maxed out. Do you know that lobbyists go to your state capitol and have convinced your representatives that they can screw poor people to the wall in the name of free enterprise? And you will have the opportunity as a voting citizen to say, not on my watch. You will have the opportunity to vote and to run for office and to stand for justice. Look, we don't live in the Soviet Union. We don't live in communist China. We don't live in Cuba. We don't live in a place where our vote doesn't matter, where we can't stand up and speak the truth. We've got that freedom. But a lot of us Christians don't use it for good. So, there's a lot of good to be doing. I mean, does America have any poor people? What do you think? Now, I just want to close with this one challenge. Jesus wants you in the church. Because you will do good deeds not just as an individual, but you'll do them as a congregation. There, there is no such thing in the New Testament as a Christian outside of the local church. You know, that, that, you, know you sort of have Americans, I don't have to go to a church to be Christian. And that's true. But you're not much of one. Because the Bible says that He joins us together. And did you know that we are not simply judged as individuals, but that we are judged by God as congregations? Just read the book of Revelation and the seven churches there. God has the ability to take the lampstand away. The lampstand is the light of the gospel in a church. And when he pulls it out, that church dies. And he'll, he'll kill your church if it's a hypocrite. And you say, but, you know, what can I do to change my church? Well, the first thing you can do is pray. And the second thing is you can be an advocate for righteousness in your church. Part of my job in life is to help plant churches among the poor. I do that because I believe the most compassionate thing we can do for poor people is to plant the right kind of church in their midst. We have too many irrelevant churches. We don't need any more of them. We need the right kind of church planted among the poor. Will you be part of that? Here's the problem. We're the PCA, and we are really good at planting churches, but we don't like to play churches where people can't tithe enough to pay the pastor's salary. That's the reality. Why in the world would you plant a church among poor people since they have no money? Does anything sound wrong to you about that? We have got to change the way we look at the harvest. Now here's another fascinating thing. The poor will hear the gospel gladly. You come to them with love. You share your life with them. They want to know Christ. But we have so many people planting churches among the middle class, and all they do is steal people from other churches and are terrified to ever talk to a non-Christian about God. But you go into the inner city and say, I want to talk to you about Jesus. Good! Let's have that conversation. 
Now, if the harvest is great there, why don't we reap it? And those of us that have money, why don't we give it to send missionaries to do it? God's will for you and me, all of us, is to play our role in a local church somewhere. Please, when you go to college, don't say, I got four years off. Get involved in a local body. When you get out of college, you get married, you find yourself in a church, and you determine, and I will tell you, take the challenge of being part of a group that plants a new church. And you know what? Here's, here's the reality about church plants. They're not going to have everything that a, a big church has. They don't have all the nursery workers, and they don't have all the youth care. And they don't have all the musicians. You know, they just might have some tired old preacher like me up there trying to, to say it like he thinks the Bible says it. And, but they're going to need people like you. Brothers and sisters, I'm just trying to tell you there are good works out there. God's already planned them for you. In a land that suffers from a lot of sin and a lot of injustice. You won't be good at doing them unless you do it by grace. You won't, you won't be an evangelist. You, you won't love the poor. You won't love widows or orphans. You, you won't feed the hungry consistently unless the Holy Spirit gives you power to do it. Now let me, let me help you. Know, we Christians, we're good at mercy tourism. We're good at mercy drive-bys. We like to have mission trips, show up in a poor neighborhood, paint a house, get back on the bus, and go home. That's not good enough. The poor need the church in all of its power and strength, living in their community, to stand for their rights, to love them, show them that God loves them, and that's how we'll change poor communities. But if all we do is use the poor for our mission experiences, nothing's going to change. Their children will be waiting there for your children to come have another mission experience. I want to see poor people no longer being poor. That's my passion. Because I think that's what happens when they fall in love with Jesus and they learn to work and do for themselves and care for their family and know there's hope. There's good to be done. Go do it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for my brothers and sisters. I pray that you would give them really good ideas about how to make a difference in this world. And Lord, we know we might make a difference only for a day or a year or for one life or, or for one neighborhood, one city block, maybe one school. But Lord, if, if you're in it, if people get saved, we know they'll live forever. If justice comes, even if, if we stood for it just for a week, we know that people have experienced your glory even for that brief moment of time. Would you please use these people in powerful ways in our world for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.